Welcome to the public event here at the Centre for the Study of Human Rights, marking a new era for equality and human rights in Britain. You're all very welcome. And uh, we have uh, a very uh, informed panel, and uh, we're doing something in a slightly different way today. Uh, we are going to ask our uh, first speaker, Trevor Phillips, whom I'll introduce properly in a moment, to speak for about 15 minutes. And then we're going to ask for comments on that speech from Jane, who's here to my left, and Francesca, who's a bit over to the left. And uh, then we're going to go to something novel and interesting for the Centre for the Study of Human Rights, which explains this slightly intimate circumstance here. We're going to go for a question and answer session of a different sort, because we have canvas for questions. And I have in my possession, and the panel has been given its homework, uh, a number of questions, which uh, the askers of, of which questions have already uh, been uh, forewarned that they're going to be called, and they are, we all hope, present. And uh, we're going to intersperse the prepared questions which we have with questions from the audience which are spontaneous. Normally, as you know, at the Centre for the Study of Human Rights, we do spontaneity only. Today, we're doing prepared questions as well. Uh, and at the end of this event, which will end, we uh, guess, around 8 o'clock, after an extensive question and answer session, uh, we will be adjourning for uh, some drinks, a reception, uh, and I'll give you full details of that later. Now, uh, we have a new Equality and Human Rights Commission, and uh, that's the uh, focus for this evening. And we have here the three people whom I'll introduce now. Trevor Phillips uh, is a great friend of the Centre for the Study of Human Rights. He's uh, been here before, gave a riveting account of human rights uh, just a couple of years ago, I think, Trevor. Uh, he's been chair of the Runnymede Trust. He's been uh, president of the National Union of Students. He's been, of course, an award winner on multiple occasions in television. Uh, and he's also pertinently been, of course, commission, uh, head of the Commission for Racial Equality. And it's uh, in his new capacity that we welcome him today and ask him to initiate our evening. Uh, it's a new capacity as chair of the Equality and Human Rights Commission. So Trevor will be speaking. And then we'll invite, uh, I think, did we agree in order? I think we thought Jane might speak next. And Jane is here to my, to my left. She's uh, been chairperson of the British Council of Disabled People. She's co-founded and for a time directed the National Centre for Independent Living. She's chair of the Office for Disability Issues Independent Living Review Expert Panel. Uh, she's been a commissioner of the Disability Rights Commission since it got golden in the year 2000, and uh, we're delighted to welcome her here tonight in her capacity as a uh, commissioner on the new Equality and Human Rights Commission. Uh, she's written uh, uh, with Michael Oliver a book called Disability Politics. I'm sure she'll have opportunities to explain the perspective she brings to the subject in the course of our extensive question and answer session. Uh, and uh, last but by no means least, we have our colleague and friend here, professorial uh, fellow at the Centre for the Study of Human Rights, Francesca Klug, who's directed the Human Rights Project, uh, been a member of the government's uh, Equality and Human Rights Steering Group, uh, an independent academic advisor on the Equality Bill, uh, a member of the Equality Review Reference Group, and uh, a member of the Home Office's Human Rights task, task Force. She's been very involved in the development of human rights law and equality law in this country. And uh, we're delighted at the Centre for the Study of Human Rights that Francesca has been appointed a commissioner as well 
on the Equality and Human Rights Commission. So what we've got, folks, are three people at the cutting edge of equality and human rights issues in the United Kingdom uh, today. And uh, we're going to ask, with renewed gratitude to all three of them for coming, we're going to ask Trevor to kick us off, either in the intimate sitting position or, like me, uh, at the podium. It's entirely a matter for you. Trevor Phillips. Well, Connor, thank you very much for that um, splendid introduction. And it was very kind of you to say all those nice things. Uh, I'm, of course, proud to be on the platform with my um, colleagues uh, at the Equality and Human Rights Commission, Jane and Francesca, who are two of our most influential commissioners. Um, I'm also, as I always am, really, these days, uh, grateful for the extensive introduction because I learned a very long time ago that at any week that um, one of my good friends turns up in the news and I go to speak somewhere, people, uh, after I start speaking, start nudging each other and asking, why isn't this the guy who reads the news at 10, or as I see this week, is about to return to read the news at 10? I can't imagine why people confuse us um, any more than I can imagine why in the past I've been confused with Howard from the Halifax at uh, Ads on TV. Um, I'm, I'm immensely proud to be speaking once again at the LSC, and, and please, because it's, uh, uh, we always, I think, have a grown-up and interesting, and in my view, illuminating discussion. Um, I have some history with the LSE. I was an undergraduate at another London college, uh, Imperial College, which uh, does think of itself as superior. I'm not going to make any comments about that. Um, but uh, after uh, half a year uh, studying chemistry, I took the view that politics and economics would be much more interesting, and I went to my tutor and I said, look, I'd like to transfer to the LSE. And he look at, looked at me askance and he said, well, Mr. Phillips, I know you are completely useless at chemistry, but you certainly don't want to go and join that hotbed of Marxists. <laughs> um, and I'm assuming that uh, the LSE is living up to its uh, tradition and I am uh, uh, I'm speaking to an audience of people with uh, Che Guevara tattoos uh, emblazoned on their hearts and sometime we'll, at the end of this we will all sing the red flag um, Francesca, Francesca and I of course uh, uh, during our time shared some memories about the LSE including the fact that we both um, were present though we didn't know each other at the time at the same occupation um, I have fond memories of occupying the director's office which was then uh, fetchingly uh, kitted out with grey carpet and glass, uh, and glass furniture, and Ralph Darendorf, who was then the, um, the director, was such a cool guy, because we turned up, and he gave us the keys, and he said, please don't break the table, but fine, go, occupy. And I thought that was, uh, that was kind of brilliant. I didn't know we had inferior people from Imperial. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd never, uh, and I, I should say right now, I'm... Uh, I'm still stuck with the LSE uh, thing because, you know, Francesca is a commissioner. I discovered that our relevant minister, Barbara Follett, is a graduate of the LSE. Um, The head of our strategy, essentially, if you like, the principal thinker in the commission, Patrick Diamond, has uh, taught here until rather recently. Um, uh, My 
uh, a review which I did for the previous Prime Minister recently on inequalities uh, was that the core of it was inspired by Tanya Burkchart, who is a brilliant, brilliant person um, and to whom I owe a great deal, including the fact that people thought that my report was halfway intelligent. And just when I think I'm going to get away from it, I get a text from my daughter who has just started um, sociology, studying sociology at Bristol, saying, who is this Giddens bloke that we've got to read all his <laughs> stuff about? Is he any good? Um, <clears throat> so, but of course, the thing about the LSE is it's always where it's at, and no doubt that is why so many LSE people are associated with the Equality and Human Rights Commission, because... Frankly, um, slightly to a greater extent than I had imagined or hoped, we are at the moment where it's at. Consider the following. A cursory look at the events of the past couple of weeks. At the last, start of last week, the mother of a teenager with cerebral palsy went to the Court of Appeal to request that her daughter be given a hysterectomy to avoid the trauma of womanhood. In the middle of the week, the newspapers full of a highbrow literary spat over one author's attitude to race and to Muslims. At the end of it, a world-famous scientist uh, appeared to claim that black people are intellectually inferior. Last weekend, the outgoing leader of the National Black Police Association was criticized after he called for police to stop and search more young black people to tackle rising gun crime. Yesterday, we uh, a couple of days ago, we learned that Scotland plans to act prescription charges while patients in England have to pay for vital medication, an issue of, an, of equality. Uh, and last night, the uh, National Black Police Association chief uh, returned to the fray, calling for positive discrimination. And today, both the Prime Minister and the Minister of Justice made big speeches about liberty and human rights. And on top of all of that, if it really wasn't enough, uh, the thing that has really dominated most of my week is that J.K. Rowling revealed that Dumbledore is gay. Uh, so you, you can imagine uh, that, frankly, just keeping up with all of the issues for which we are in some way responsible for being the authority would take most of our day. But the important point about these stories, disparate as they are, is that they have one very crucial factor in common. They raise questions about the balance between equality and equal treatment on the one hand and the recognition of human difference on the other, with the following question, one about the meaning and the significance of human rights. But the point is that in a world where more of us meet more people who are very different to ourselves, to a greater extent, as uh, Jack Straw said in his speech today, than at any time probably in human history, Issues like these test the, the, the boundaries of our commitment to equality and human rights for other people who are not like ourselves. What I think is very new in this situation is that though these questions, uh, none of them are entirely new ones, many of them will have arisen in the past, for the first time I think something is very different about the way that we approach them in Western societies particularly. None of the protagonists in these disputes will hide away and accept that the price of being different is invisibility and impotence. Everybody wants their particular kind of humanity acknowledged and they want their difference to be respected. 
And in a way, that is the first part of the Commission's job. Uh, our job, if anything, is to highlight, on the one hand, the enormous energy that we gain from human diversity, but also to eliminate the practices which make it a disadvantage to be different. We're just 25 days in, so it's not... Uh, it's a little too early for me to say what I think about some of these cases I've mentioned. But when you look behind the headlines, you can see that there are critical questions which demand uh, an answer. And what I can say is that I think that for us, the answers have to be preceded by fundamental commitment to preventing people being trapped by others' prejudices. If the Equality and Human Rights Commission is about anything, it is about that uh, balance or that process that delivers both fairness and freedom. And to give a couple of examples, for example, we know that the police's use of stop and search powers is an issue, but I have to confess I greeted the call for their greater use with a bit of scepticism, even if it is true that this is a genuinely popular demand within minority communities who, of course, face the effects and the impact of gun crime and so on. Since black men are six times as likely as the average to be stopped anyway, how much more attention do we want the police to give them? And isn't it actually possible that what is being demanded here by people is not further racial discrimination or racial profiling, but simply more and better policing in poor areas. And behind the publish anguish, public anguish about Alison Thorpe's desire to seek a surgical procedure to prevent the maturation of her daughter, Katie, are we asking ourselves the right questions? And we might start, and this is something that Jane and uh, Francesca and other colleagues have discussed, Perhaps we ought to start, before we think about any of those things, about, by asking to what extent is Katie, are Katie's rights to privacy being, protect, uh, being respected in this kind of public discussion, and a public discussion about aspects of her life that if anybody wanted to talk about in any of our cases, we would be outraged. In essence, the breach of her human rights is that we have stopped talking about this young woman as a human being. In a sense, all of the debate about Katie Thorpe has stopped treating her like any one of us, but is beginning to turn her into an object, an object of pity or compassion, but nonetheless an object. The territory that we are, if you like, policing is more complex than... I think, ever before. Because we come into the world as the Equality and Human Rights Commission in a time of super diversity. We talk now about an age of difference. And that is partly because, objectively, our communities are being transformed. We are, there's more movement around the globe just in terms of ethnicity and religion, faith. We know that there are more different kinds of people in this country than ever before. Uh, we, used to, we know the United Nations tells us 200 million people live and work outside the country of their birth. Actually, one just needs to walk around Portugal Street and stand outside the LSE, and you will see uh, the difference, the diversity uh, of this place. 
Uh, but that is happening in every high street uh, all over this country. And that, of course, means that we can draw on that diversity. It gives us our prosperity. It gives us our energy. But we also know that there are frictions and there are difficulties that come with it. But it's not just objective diversity. I think it's also important to recognize that there is, if you like, subjective diversity. People want to be recognized for what they are rather than having their identities, uh, if you like, submerged. Women do not want to, for example, go to work and succeed because they operate in the way that men traditionally have operated. They want to be what they are. People from ethnic minorities uh, essentially want their difference recognized. Muslim men and women don't want to have to go down the pub and sink any endless numbers of beers in order to be part of the workplace and to be eligible for promotion within the team and so on. Disabled people, frankly invisible when I was a child, no longer want to be shut away and treated as though they are an embarrassment to the community. Now all of these things are right, but the fact is that if we were going to do that, we have to change some fundamental things about the way that we operate. Because historically, the reason that people's difference was suppressed, the reason that over in the city uh, today, fewer than 10% of gay people, as far as we can make out, will acknowledge their sexual orientation to their colleagues, is because it has always cost you. The difference has always cost you. So in practice, uh, the first step that we have to concern ourselves about is if we want this world of diversity and difference to thrive, is we have to make it safe for people to acknowledge, accept, and celebrate their difference. And that is why the first task on our agenda is the task of social justice, to stop new inequalities emerging, to reduce the old ones, to tackle the patterns of exclusion and inequality and segregation which arise out of our, our inability to deal with human difference. So how are we as a society to deliver this future of equality, fairness, as well as prosperity and cohesion? Well, we have a number uh, of capability, uh, capacities uh, in which we might do this. Let me just briefly run down for you some of the things which I think are important about the new commission. We're the first national body tasked with promoting the values of the Human Rights Act. And I want to come back to the, that at the end of my uh, remarks. We're the first full-spectrum equalities body uh, coupled with human rights of our kind in the world. And for the first time, though disability, uh, gender and race have had statutory homes for their protection, it is the first time that age, faith and sexual orientation have had a statutory champion, if you like, uh, in this country. Now, I want to um, say a few words about, if you like, uh, how we might be different in our emphasis. Uh, and I'll simply say, because I don't want to uh, run over my 15 minutes more than I have to, that we expect to do pretty much what our legacy commissions did in terms of dealing with complaints, offering help, offering guidance. 
But what I want to talk about very briefly tonight is what you might see that is different, because I think this tells you something about how we deal with this new world of diversity. First of all, we recognize, uh, we exist partly to recognize that humanity doesn't fall neatly into six strands, as the, the, the jargon goes. Nobody is only a black person. No person is only their gender. No disabled person is only a disabled person. No gay or lesbian person is only their sexual orientation. Each and every one of us is a combination of many things, which includes our backgrounds, our professions, and so on. So an equality regime which simply says, generically, protect women, protect black people, so on, has some value, but in a world where people are emerging with their full sets of identities, it doesn't quite work. And let me give you a very simple example. Women are disadvantaged, yes, but actually, if we are serious about challenging the pay gap, challenging the disadvantage of women within the labor market, we need to identify which kind of women. Actually, the truth is we now know that a woman, young woman without children starting today has pretty much the same labor market prospect as a young man until and unless she has children. And what we know now is that six, uh, uh, 40 years ago, women with children were at a disadvantage in the labor market of about 70%. That's improved immensely to about a disadvantage of about 40%. And let me tell you how severe that is. Women uh, who have children, 40% less likely, uh, if they want to, to enter the labor market. People with what are described in the literature as severe uh, impairments, 17% less. People in ethnic minorities, around about 3, 4, 5%. My point here is, it's not enough to talk about women's disadvantage. We have to deal with the actual specifics of their disadvantage. Another example. It's not enough to talk about the disadvantages facing black people. We might better talk about what is, in my view, the single most uh, disgraceful scandal in our country when it comes to the treatment of the individual. And that is the treatment by the psychiatric services of young black men. And the important thing about these people is that they are young, they are black, they are male, and they have suffered from mental health episodes of one kind or another. It is the combination of all of those things that makes the difference. And what is important about our commission is that we don't have any questions, really, about who's responsible for this, for dealing with this, who's responsible for attacking this. It's us. It's not a dis disability question. It's not a race question. It is solve the problem question. The other point I want to make, uh, second point I want to make about the importance of the new commission is that we need to tackle emerging kinds of uh, inequalities. For example, three and a half million to five million women uh, or people, mostly women, between their mid-40s and their mid-60s, having thought that they had got their children out of the door sent them to the LSE and they'd never see them again, um, except you know, when they turn up the laundry or call up and say, my student loan hasn't arrived. They thought they'd have their lives back. 
actually what is happening today is that those three and a half to five million women uh, are now responsible for elderly parents, many of whom are bereaved, many of whom at the moment cannot live independently. Now, this is not something to disapprove of, but it is something to observe that those women, many of whom are talented, capable, want to get back into the labor market, for example, or into education, find that the world is not sympathetic to their desire. They can't quite get jobs that will fit with their caring responsibilities. And what we're now about to do, actually, is to find that those women are shut out. In the near future, one of the issues that we're concerned about uh, when we talk about new sources of inequality, over at my alma mater uh, at Imperial College, you will know that they can now read your genome pretty well. They can tell increasingly, you can certainly tell about Huntington's, but they will soon be able to tell about your susceptibility in later life to certain kinds of conditions. You may not get those conditions. In fact, you probably won't. But because we can tell, should we use that information? And actually, let's kick the ball to the ethicists here at, at the LSE. What do we do about that? Should we allow insurance companies to load your premiums because they can see something on your DNA that might produce, might produce a greater risk than the person who's sitting next to you? If there's, no, if there's an equality challenge that is fundamental, there it is. So my point is, the second value of the new commission is that we increasingly have to deal with new sources, new drivers for inequality. And the third point I want to make uh, very briefly is a broader point. Historically, we've thought about inequality as largely an issue to do with individuals. I don't like your face because you're white, so I'm not going to give you a job. Well, actually, everybody who knows anything about this knows that partly because through the work of the existing commissions and the laws on race and gender, discrimination and disability, that's less likely to happen now. What is likely to happen, however, <coughs> is increasingly we have a, uh, a society in which categories of people are excluded. Now, I'm sure Jane will talk a little bit more about this when she speaks, but we know clearly that the way that our buildings and our physical landscape is shaped is actually constructed in such a way as to exclude and discriminate against whole categories of people because they have one impairment or another. Now, the fact is we can do something about it, but we first have to recognize that the discrimination against these particular, this group of people isn't about some particular individual. It's about a whole category of people. It is also true that that is increasingly, now we know, uh, one of the causes of disadvantages of people on the, on the grounds of race. To give you an example, um, Experian, who are one of the big credit agencies a few years ago, uh, did a little survey. They were looking at ethnicity of borrowers and so on. And what they showed was that the people with the lowest credit ratings tended to live in uh, areas where there's a high concentration of South Asians, South Hall, so on. This is a bit puzzling because, of course, those areas increasingly are really rather middle class. They're certainly industrious. They're full of people who work, who own their own homes. So why would they uh, be, have low credit ratings, be unlikely to get loans from banks and so on? Well, the old answer would be to say this is 
racism on heat. And what we need to do is to go and uh, train up the bank managers. We need to prosecute them and so on and so forth. But it's quite hard to believe that every bank manager just hates Asian people. Uh, indeed, in, increasingly, because lots of them are South Asian origin themselves. And that they would hate Asian people, but not, for example, dislike African Caribbeans. Actually, when, we, when you look into it, what you actually discover is a, very, is a se separate point. The way that the credit rating system is constructed uh, depends quite a lot on your loan history. So in a lot of these areas, because the uh, South Asian communities there do not like to borrow, what you find is they have a home, they have a job, all that's pretty good, they are stable people. What's their loan history? The computer asks, what's your loan history? They have no loan history because they don't like to borrow. computer says, no loan history, you don't get your loan. Straight out of Little Britain. So the answer to that is not to go into a big thing about individual discrimination. It is to fix the framing of the problem, basically put a good computer programming in there to fix the computer that decides on your loan. And indeed, the way things are at the moment, the person who's going to fix it is probably going to be an Asian, technic, uh, an Asian programmer from Bangalore. So the point I'm trying to make here is we have a new challenge, which is not just to deal with individual discrimination, but to deal with the framework in which discrimination takes place. I want to make two last points, which are, in a way, relate to the Prime Minister's and Jack Straw's speeches today. I've talked a lot about equality and the way that we deal with discrimination. But we think there are two more profound issues. First of all, our history of dealing with equality is one in which we ask people to deal with, deal with it through courtrooms. We might deal with it to some extent through policy and so on. But the truth is, our anti-discrimination, our equality legislation is piecemeal. There are about 90 instruments of different kinds, laws, European directives, and so on, which relate to it. Yet we as a country do not say in any fundamental way, if you like a constitutional way, that we are committed to equality. And we think that if the Prime Minister really believes, as he says, that we need to address the issue of a constitution, have a written constitution, one of the first two or three clauses in that constitution should be a promise that the British people make to themselves, because that's what a constitution is, that this is a society in which equality is a fundamental value. And what does that mean in practice? What it means in practice is that what we have to say is that every law, every piece of policy, every act by government has to be tested for its value and its effect on equality or inequality. And in so far as we can do it as a society, no instrument, no law, no policy should ever be admitted in this country which does not lead to greater equality. And the second point I uh, want to, to make uh, about the government's position more generally now is relates to human rights. Now, um, we'll no doubt talk in our to and fro about the image of human rights. And I probably don't need to talk uh, at any length in this gathering about where we are in human rights uh, in this country. Yeah, I'm going to finish. It's, uh, it's a boo word. It's a bad word. We think that one of our first priorities is to try to work to create a positive narrative on human rights 
in this country. And Jack Straw, I think, has helped to begin that today, moving away from the view that human rights are legal tools that help criminals, terrorists, and the generally undeserving to, meet, uh, to get their nefarious ways against the rest of the community. But in essence, we think that this is, lies underneath uh, the drive for equality to tell people what human rights should really be about. In essence, human rights should be the way that we treat each other as human beings, especially in this time of increased diversity and difference. If we need the guidelines, if we need the rules, if you like one of my, col what my, colleagues, one of my colleagues calls the ground rules for a fairer society, there they are in our Human Rights Act and within our human rights culture. And if I had to say what is our first and most important priority, and I'm not just saying this because I'm in this room, my colleagues will have heard me say this before, that has to be it. Because unless we can transform that debate and that discussion, I will say that pretty much all our other efforts will come to naught. Thank you. We want to introduce our two colleagues and co-commissioners here and uh, say just a few words uh, and, and uh, maybe a comment or two, not compulsory, on what we've heard from Trevor. And then we're going to go to the Q&A and uh, we're going to pick out one or two of the questions that I have already and then go to go to a, uh, some spontaneous questions and we get a kind of discussion going. But Jane, over to you. Can I whiz off to this? Whiz off then. Can you hear that? I'll try not to whiz off the end. Um, Yes, well, um, I think I'll keep it very short. The comment I would like to take from Trevor really is how we treat, treat each other as human beings. And I guess really that's what I've been really interested in with regard to human rights for the last 10 years. It's actually doing it, not writing it, not thinking about it, but doing it. Um, I was always very struck by Albie Sachs when he said, Human rights begins in our hearts before we are committed to paper. And um, that's really what I'm quite interested in, is what our hearts tell us when we know that we're probably doing something to another person that undermines their human rights. So in the last three, last decade, I have, as a disability rights commissioner, intervened in three very, very important human rights cases. One was to support a postman called Leslie Burke who wanted <coughs> the medical profession to understand that he had a right to dictate, dictate how he wanted to die. And he didn't want to die of being starved to death or dehydrated to death. He just wanted to die naturally. And he challenged this in the High Court under the right to be treated not with degrading treatment and the right to life before his death. That was a fundamental case that was all about a person's <coughs> right to have a humanity until his death. And although he lost the case on appeal, it began to change the way we think about each other and the way we treat each other as human beings. Another case, <coughs> another case was a little baby that was just like me, would have grown up to be me. But again, the doctors thought this child would not live to be a human being that would be cherished and loved and had less humanity, i.e. her life was not 
as equal to those of others. Again, it was a human rights case about how we think about each other. The third one was a case of twin sisters who lived at home and then suddenly one day the local authority decided it would be easier for them to remove them from their home and look after them in residential care. This was a lifting and handling case. All three were human rights cases and all three were about the way we think about the humanity and the value of another person. So for me, it's very much about what we think about each other and what we feel about each other rather than just equality. So human rights reaches the places that equality doesn't quite reach. That's my comment. Thank you very much, Jane. Thank you. And uh, lastly, before we go to Q&A, uh, Francesca. Thank you, Connor. <clears throat> well, I was sent a briefing um, by the Equality <coughs> Commission office for tonight in preparation, and it said, um, when you're asked, do you have any comments about Trevor Phillips' speech, <laughs> it says, say, I agree with every single word. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the only... Uh, the only thing I could possibly add, because I did actually agree with uh, just about everything he said, was um, a reflection, really, uh, having the advantage of sitting here and watching you all react to his speech. And I was thinking, what do you make of this new commission? I mean, you know, I'd actually quite like to ask you, but then I'd get, you know, get myself out of having to speak. Um, and could listen to you all instead. But I'm wondering if you think of it as you know, some sort of bureaucratic monster, some sort of obscure uh, thing come from the intergalactic world down, suddenly arrived and we're talking about it like this. I wonder if you think of it as a, uh, a sad successor from really three very creditable uh, and important institutions which have now you know, faded from sight to the establishment of the new commission, which is the... Uh, Commission for Racial Equality, the Equal Opportunities Commission, and the Disability Rights Commission. And I'm wondering if you think it's something going to be something very exciting and new. I don't know what you make of it. But what I was pondering on is whether in, say, 10 years from now, when the future Prime Minister, uh, one can only speculate who that might be, <coughs> um, is making a speech like the current Prime Minister did today about what this country stands for. And the current Prime Minister today said liberty is the defining value of, of Britain down the ages and today. And I, well, I was thinking just now, I suppose what I would like to see in 10 years' time is that in addition to curry, and I'm now told rugby as defining uh, symbols <coughs> of Britain, um, if not the uh, Equality and Human Rights Commission, at the very least the values of equality and human rights, will be the values that people think of when they think of what it is to live in this country and to identify with this country. And I hope that our commission will go some way to achieving that, not just by being an enforcer, because we are, and that's very important, but I think by reflecting and facilitating a national conversation about the kind of difficult issues that are very real and very rooted in people's experience that both Trevor and Jane talked about. If we're able to reflect and facilitate that national conversation, but within a recognisable framework that people think, oh yes, that's fair, that's just, that's what I mean by 
equality. That's what I mean by liberty. If we're able to do that, then I hope in 10 years from now, our commission will be part <coughs> of what people feel good about when they think about living in this country. Great. Thank you very much, Francesca and Jen. And Francesca's early questions uh, remind me to say, if you have a strong point of view by way of answer to those, and you get the chance to speak, you can put the answers in. If you feel the whole thing is this, that, or the other, tell us, because I think it's part of a two-way dialogue here. Now, first question. Uh, I'm reminding you all that I usually ask you to say who you are and also to keep your remarks reasonably short. We have a fair bit of time because of the discipline of our speakers, but not a huge amount, and we want to get through a lot of we as we, if we can. First question I'm going to take, first couple of questions are from, are from people who are in our program and who've put these questions in. I'm, I'm going to draw colleagues in here, and then I'm going to keep them quiet if necessary because we want to keep the thing going. Uh, and I'm going to ask uh, Merhunisa Yusuf. Is Merhunisa here? There you are. And your questions, we've awarded you top marks because you <laughs> asked two questions. You may have submitted about nine, but we've accepted two of them. So if you remember what they are, which would be, uh, could you ask your questions at the panel, telling yeah. everybody who you are? Uh, I will, but uh, just a quick question. Uh, I was told only one question. Okay, you can select your greatest question. Okay. <laughs> well, if you don't mind, can I ask the other one as well? <laughs> <laughs> this is stopping Q&A and become a bargaining situation. Carry on. <laughs> Okay, well, what I'll do is I'll ask the first one first and then Making we have Making sure the microphone is right up to you. Then I'll come. Okay, um, I'm, my name's Meher. I'm from Pakistan, and um, I'm doing the MSc in Human Rights. The question I had was um, something that we've been tackling in, my, in our degree is that equality is, is one of the values under human rights. So I'm just curious as to why there's been a distinction between equality and human rights when it comes to this, this commission. I mean, is there... Okay, is that, that's, that, is that yeah, one that's question or in a complicated that's way? That's question questions? one. Oh, you want to come back on question two? No. <laughs> tell us what question two is. I'm going to take one or two people and then we're going to go to the audience. Okay, I, the I question, want to answer that one. question two was basically that you, I think Francesca mentioned that you've had these three different committees dealing, commissions dealing with separate issues. So what is the reason why they were amal this commission is now amalgamating all three? And is there really a huge conceptual shift in the way you'll be dealing with these issues as opposed to the other three? Commissions. Right. So, Thank you. It. Thank you very much. And, and, and the second is not the second question I've written down. You have a wealth of questions at your disposal, and you've chosen two of them. Now, Alexandrine, is Alexandrine here? Alexandrine? Because you might have thought there were some similarities between your question and the second spontaneously produced question. So perhaps we'll take yours, which is rather similar. Yes. Um, my question was about... And, and remind everybody who you are. Yes, I'm, I'm a PhD student in Paris 7 and Queen Mary University and um, working on intersectionality, so I'm very much interested in this commission. And I was wondering whether this commission would bring more cohesion or more confusion to the issue of discrimination, and whether it is likely to help the understanding of multi-layered identities when uh, gender might be combined with either minority ethnic background, disability, age, sexual orientation, or any other aspects of identity. Right. Thank you very much. I think we'll, we'll start with those, and then we'll come to the audience for some more. Jane, I think you thought you might want to talk about the first. Did you see <coughs> yeah, I'll kind of just give you an example of what we mean by a distinction. Um, if you think of a group of learning, people with learning difficulties, and they go to the zoo, and the zookeeper says, you can't come in, you're going to frighten the animals. That was a case that the DLC took 
in its very first year and won it on the grounds of non-discrimination. The same kind of group of people are living in a home in Cornwall and every day they're treated to a regime of being beaten, being put in cold showers, being denied food and basically being treated in a very, very poor and degrading way. The people that did this were told, gosh, that's really, really bad, that's a terrible training issue, we'll take you and we'll give you better training so that you don't do it again. Because they said they didn't think they were doing any harm. Equality could not touch them. Human rights could. And it's taking you beneath the surface of equality. People can receive very, very bad services, um, older people in hospitals. They can be denied food by just the nurse forgetting to feed them. They can be left on backpacks for days just because there's a lack of staff. That is a human rights issue. But you cannot get them on equality ground because they would just say, that's a bad service. Everybody will be treated equally in that situation. So for me, equality and human rights, human rights takes you deeper. It takes you into the way we treat each other and not teaching everybody the same. So that's the way I would probably distinguish it. Thank you. Thank you very much. I think Francesca wants to come I was just going to add, first of all, I'm delighted you were listening to every word I said in the last lecture about how (laughs) equality is a driving force of human rights. I mean, Jane Jane has to be absolutely right. You know, it's no part of human rights thinking that people are treated equally badly. Um, But at the same time, I have a sort of um, mixed view about this about the title of the body, which I think is also what you asked. And so I'm going to answer the question at a much less deep level than, than Jane and just address the issue of the title of the body. Um, on the one hand, you know, Trevor wouldn't dare contradict me after I dutifully said I agree with every word he said. But as far as I'm concerned, this is a Human Rights Commission and it's in the um, model of Human Rights Commissions around the world, of which there are nearly 100 now. Um, we're one of the last, uh, certainly the last modern democracy to have a human rights commission and one of the excitements for me in in this new dawn is the fact that here we are in Britain with a human rights commission (laughs) but everything has a context and the context in this country is that we had three very effective and in my view very important anti-discrimination commissions I was one of these people who was very very sceptical in fact Trevor may or may not want to admit this, but he was one of the people that persuaded me to be less sceptical about the demise of the current commi- of the previous three commissions originally. And they, they developed in the particular context of the way anti-discrimination legislation has evolved in this country. And in that context, keeping the name equality in the title is a signal that we both are looking to the future and joining, if you like, the the world of human rights commissions, but drawing on the very rich legacy of our anti-discrimination and equality commissions of the past. And therefore, I'm very comfortable with the dual title. Uh, Trevor, uh, cohesion or confusion? And then this business about being a commission for equality and human rights and then becoming an equality and human rights commission. Okay, let me do the second one first. Um, <clears throat> it's very straightforward. CEHR is almost impossible for anybody to remember as a set of initials. Uh, somebody will one day do a PhD t- uh, thesis on why it is impossible 
for even the staff for, who work for it to remember that set of initials. Um, this EHRC, see what I mean? EHRC is slightly easier, but okay. the real point is a very simple one. Um, and it's a psychological one, really. Uh, we thought it's more important for people to understand what we do than to think about our status. See, the bureaucrats aren't... The, the, the bureaucrats will always say commission and then worry about the content afterwards. People who worry about actually what we're going to do, campaign, <coughs> will always say it's equality and human rights and then it's called oh, it's a commune or a commune. And who cares? The point is, what do we do? So that's why we switched it around. Um, on the other question about why shift from three to one, there are some people who thought this was purely administrative. I, myself, never think that you should lead anything by it for administrative reasons. I think administration is there to help you achieve your function. And uh, what is the issue here? Well, one point is the point that someone made about multiple identity. It's very simple and straightforward. You don't, you know, people, individuals don't exist as a colour or a gender. They exist as whole human beings. And I think the institutional form you have to adopt has to respond to that. And there's a practical point. A woman who finds that she is earning half or two-thirds of what the men who are doing the job she's doing uh, 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 doesn't actually know, frankly, whether it's because she's a woman or because she might be black. And there was a certain amount of people chasing around different offices to try to see where they would have the best case and all of that. Now, I think that's ridiculous. So part of the point of the uh, commission is, that to, again, to recognise people's real-life uh, situations. Thirdly, there are similarities about the, in terms of the way we deal with anti-discrimination right across the so-called the six dimensions of gender and so forth. But I think lastly, there are two much more important points. What we, one of the things we now know that I think is extremely important is that inequality isn't just about discrimination. The pay gap for women uh, isn't just about horrible, bigoted bosses. It is also about job segregation, which is about education and its, its culture. It is also to some extent about choice, and we have a, a debate to have about whether that choice is constrained or not. The ethnic penalty that's paid by people from ethnic minorities in terms of pay and job market is also comprised of location. You know, if you're in Leeds or Bradford and you are Asian, your fate is likely to be quite different. So inequality isn't just about discrimination. And the last point I just want to make is that our job, in, in the remarks I was trying to make, perhaps not as clear as I would have liked, has moved on from just thinking about individuals or individual discrimination. If I had to say it, it's about anything, it's about institutional reform. It is, for example, what is it in the practices, the recruitment practices of universities like the London School of Economics that leads to a situation where, I don't know about the students, but the staff are way disproportionately not white. It's not that everybody in the LSE or similar universities is a racist. There is something about the way the institution works that produces that result. And that's what we have to attack, rather than worrying ourselves too much about ferreting out the odd racist here or there. 
because that might solve one or two individual problems, but the big problem is an institutional systemic one. Well, thank, thank you very much, Trevor. I'm going to call uh, Randy and then Ben, but I'm, I'm also, directly after that, going to call members of the audience who uh, generally one hand already popped up, an efficient user of the service here. Uh, so I got another, but I'm going to call uh, Randy, uh, Randy Luster. Do we have Randy here? Yes, Randy. So the microphone's heading towards you, and you're going to remember today who you are and what you study, and then ask, hopefully, the question you've sent in. Yep. Hi, my name's Randy Luster. I'm an undergraduate law and human rights student at the University of Essex. And uh, my question was, um, will the new commission support the rights of unpopular minority groups, if you can even call prisoners that? And just thinking in particular about how at the moment um, prisoners still don't have the right to vote, even though the European Court Human Rights said that they should. It's one issue the government seems to be dragging its feet on. Thank you very much, Randy. And Ben, uh, Ben Grant. Do we have Ben Grant here? Yes, Ben, right in the center. Uh, Microphone's coming in from your left. Ben. Um, I'm Ben Grant from BPP College just up the road, um, studying law. Um, I'd just like to first say that I, I do see the, the uh, commission as, as being a, a very good thing, um, an, an overdue thing, and something that we desperately need um, with the current situation in the world. Um, my question, or the one that I wrote, I've thought of a better one since, but never mind. Um, do British children have a right to freedom from religion, and if so, how will the Commission help enforce it? Thank you very much. I don't think you have any worries about being, it being, it being a, a bland question. Uh, so uh, we're going to go to Francesca and Trevor and Jane in a moment, but I'm, also, I'm going to ask this lady here, and we're going to prioritize the top, so we've got a gentleman here, and uh, then we're going to go to the audience. So this lady, she's just, just right here, this lady here. I'm going to have to come back in a different way. So we'll take you and we'll take you very briefly. But these three, I don't want to overload our commissioners. So fairly sharpish in telling us who you are. My name is Mirt and I'm also a student of the MSc in Human Rights. Um, I'm not familiar with the work of the three commissions that preceded this commission. But I feel that, um, that often human rights commissions are just paper tigers. Uh, both because people are not aware of their existence and because they don't have a lot of competences. And I was wondering, how are you going to make sure that this commission is going to be more than just a paper tiger? Thank you very much. Very succinct. Very nice. And this gentleman, and the microphone's right beside you, sir. And then we're going just over here to the left. So we do the upstairs. Yes. Thank you. Um, Derek Oakley. I'm a student in voluntary sector management. Yeah. Thank you, sir. Could you say that school? again? Sure, yeah. I'm yeah. um, Derek Oakley. I'm a student up the road at Cass Business School in Moorgate in voluntary sector management. But I've done one of the short courses with yourselves. Um, in a country where, again, we are one of the modern democracies and relatively developed, and yet one in five people are in relative poverty, and one in four children are in relative poverty, um, will the new commission have a remit or a responsibility in terms of later generation rights um, around the right to food and the right to money, essentially, and a livelihood that are recognized by, um, in UN declarations? So, again, looking at institutional reform and structural inequalities that shape our society. Thank you very much, Jack. And the final one in this round, and thank you for the succinctness, is this gentleman over here. Sir. Um, Mark Seeley, Director of Autograph, the Association of Black Photographers. I'm just interested in um, strategies that will be in place with regards to dealing with issues of equality and human rights. Um, I think just um, the reason why I'm asking that question is that I'm very concerned that there isn't a coherent strategic kind of monitoring um, agenda, I suppose, in place which will actually challenge some of the institutional questions that Trevor was talking about earlier. 
Thanks, Mark, very much. Well, we've got uh, votes for prisoners, religion, paper tigers, poverty and strategy. It's a, a rather <coughs> routine LSE question session. Uh, I wonder whether the briefing you got prepared you for this, Francesca. Can we, can we start with you? I don't think we can deal with all five each, but let's go <coughs> Francesca, Jane, and then Trevor in a sweep up. So, as you wish, Francesca. Well, I'm a popular minority. I mean, first of all, uh, being popular isn't everything. As I'm sure Jane will say, you can be popular and patronised. Um, so, you know, but, but nevertheless, I think that you're, you're hitting... Who was it that asked the question? Sorry, my... my that's it, oh, that's lovely. Great. Uh, it's an important question. It's a very important question. I mean, there's no doubt about it, that, and Trevor alluded to it at the end, that there is a discourse that's now run away with itself in this country, that human rights are for people who don't deserve them, and the rest of us who behave law-abidingly and well, we don't have access to them. And this can, if, if human rights is not to become a dirty word, which is something I think we absolutely can't afford, in the modern world, or any other time, frankly, then we're going to have to address this straight on. So we have to communicate about issues like prisoners' rights in a sharp and smart way. I personally think, I mean, it's inconceivable that issues like that would not be within the ambit of this body. Let me say that first of all. This is a body for everyone, and when we say everyone, we mean everyone. Um, but I think we are going to have to be smart about how we talk about issues like that. People in this room will have different views about whether prisoners should be allowed to vote or not. But I think we need to reframe the debate if we're going to enter that terrain. And I think the kind of way you, you enter a debate like that is you talk about rehabilitation, which is what I meant by in 10 years' time, I hope, that we will represent and, uh, uh, the values that people feel are the values that we hold dear in this country. Because I think, you know, when I grew up, I think, you know, people did think we stood for things like rehabilitation. This was a good, liberal idea that we could accommodate in our society. And the discourse has run away with itself. So whatever view you take on the rights of prisoners to vote, and people have, a, a, you know, there's a, very, there's, a, there's a variance there in terms of, you know, whether we're talking about lifers, whether we're talking about people who are in for a short time and need to come out as fully engaged citizens. We need to talk about it in a way people can relate to, and I think people can relate to the idea of rehabilitation. Jack Straw did this today in his speech that uh, Trevor talked about. He talked about the whole controversy about deporting people who are genuinely at risk of being tortured. He talked about, he asked people who are listening to him to consider themselves, do they really want people to be sent back to countries where they're going to be more murdered and tortured? What judge would do that in all conscience, whether it was in the law or not? And again, framed the debate in terms of what we stand for as a society. So yes, you know, we, we are absolutely, when we say everyone, we mean everyone. We're not going to make our issues popular at the expense of the unpopular, but we have to do so in a way that has resonance. One other issue I'll address, and then I'll let my uh, fellow commissioners address all the others, being very <laughs> kind and generous, and that's about uh, social and economic rights, I think. You were, I mean, it, you know, the, the, the human rights definition that the body is responsible for in the Act includes all human rights, and that means all human rights and all charters. So, you know, the straightforward answer to your question is yes, potentially. Uh, obviously, the body's got to prioritise how and where it works. But I think another way into your question is to say, when we talk about equality, do we just mean uh, discrimination or you know, human rights in the hard-edged sense of, of, of torture and, and, and fair trial? Or do we mean also equality in terms of class? 
and unequal uh, life chances and all that goes in with that. And I've heard our chair say that we do mean equality in terms of class, so I can say with utter confidence, and it's certainly where I'm coming from, that I can't imagine how a body called the Equality of Human Rights Commission isn't going to talk head on and face the fact that growing <coughs> inequalities in themselves have implications for people's life chances, that there is growing evidence about the impact of you know, generation upon generation uh, <coughs> inequality and how that affects your experience of school, your chances of getting into higher education, the kind of jobs you have and therefore all the opportunities you have in life. I think this will be absolutely the context in which we operate and that is one of the liberating factors of having this broader Equality and Human Rights Commission uh, in contrast to the previous Anti-Discrimination Commission. Thank you, Francesca. Jane, do you want to come in on subjects of your choice? I can't see you, but I will do paper tigers. Um, Two things you've got to remember. We are new and we have so much to draw upon. Um, The one thing that really bothered, and I have to say it really bothered me, was um, the Disability Rights Commission had been only going for six years, and we were really getting going, and then they said, right, all together now, and we went, oh, gold, oh, shit, and we weren't very happy. And I was one of those. Um, But my mind has changed, and I'll tell you why it has changed. The thing about paper-tailed tigers and being all put together, um, you can shove everyone together and make a patchwork quilt so that you are only the sum of your parts. Or you can lift from everything that has gone before. You can look at where human rights, um, human rights organizations and equality, equality situations in local authorities have again just been the patchwork quilt. And you can see where you've gone wrong. And I suppose for me, the joining of the dots now in our evolution is the right time because I do think for race, gender, disability, sexuality, we do have a confidence about who we are, what we are, and what, where we want to go, which we haven't had before. Don't forget we're living in a new decade, in a new century. And I think that learning from the legacy commissions, from other human rights organisations, and also that confidence that has come with 21st century people who have experienced equality for centuries will be what will make this new commission. But the jury's out. We'll have to watch it very, very carefully. And certainly for the disability dimension, we felt we've only really just got to find out who we are as disabled people. Actually, we're not that confident yet. So that is why we decided to put a statutory disability committee into the new Commission for Equality and Human Rights, when no other dimension or strand had one. Now, there's a bit of to do about that, but I think we were right. In five years' time, it's my hope that we will not need it. But for now, that difference, that complication around, you know, we're not just talking about disabled people. You're talking about hundreds of different impairments that need hundreds of different reasonable adjustments. That knowledge has got to be embedded. So I think we're getting there, is the answer. But I don't think we'll be a paper tiger. Um, and just one quick thing on being strategic. Obviously, we're not starting anew. We have been quite strategic 
with, for instance, equality duties that have made tremendous changes in the public sector, and that is certainly true of disability. We looked at the Act recently, and we thought, no, it's not quite there. It's not strategic enough. It will not make that sea change that we require. And that's why we, for once, the government listened, and it said, oh, all right, then, we'll listen to the people for a change. And so I believe that kind of strategic direction will be implemented into the new Equality Act over the next, hopefully, 12, 20 months. Thank you very much, Jane. And, uh, well, Trevor, you can pick what you want, but um, religion is uh, compulsory. <laughs> yes, more, yes, more, yes, more. Um, just very quickly, on Mark's question about uh, strategic monitoring, um, Jane's uh, started this, but I'll simply say that one of the reasons that we are taking advantage of the uh, work and the, um, cap- the brilliance, frankly, of people here at the LSE in developing a measurement framework is so that we can be strategic. The essential point is what <coughs> matters most, what will create the most impact. And by the way, that's not always necessarily just what will affect the most, the large number of people. But uh, Tanya and her colleagues have been uh, putting together, I think, a really rather sophisticated way of approaching measurement that I think will help us to understand what is the right strategic approach. Uh, but in practice, by the way, on, uh, sorry for everybody who's not an anorak on equality law, one of the, um, if you like, the, the key strategic uh, piece of implementation will be memoranda of understanding with uh, the inspectorates who, for example, inspect schools, inspect higher education, inspect healthcare, and so on, to ensure that in their inspection of public bodies, for example, that they include uh, essentially inspection of their performance on equality, I hope ultimately on human rights. We think that we will probably uh, do uh, some sectoral uh, examinations in the private sector. So, for example, you can expect to see us looking at particular industries over the next two or three years pretty and, uh, and beyond that uh, in detail. And I think that's the way that we will approach this strategically. Uh, we'll use our resources to achieve maximum impact. On the question about religion, uh, well, look, the answer is yeah. That's why we talk about religion and belief. But let's bear in mind that uh, freedom worship or freedom not to worship is also a human right. So when you say freedom from religion, I'm not entirely sure what the implication of that is. Uh, It might be, I suppose, that do we think that there should not be worship in public places, uh, as in the position in France. I think that's quite a long leap uh, from this in this country. I don't, frankly, see it as one of our first priorities to abolish assembly. on the question that just lastly on the unpopular minorities, I agree with everything Francesca said. When I was at the Commission for Racial Equality, one of the things that we um, did in the last three years that I was there was to give a high priority to probably the least popular group of people anywhere in this country, that is gypsies and travellers who, frankly, everybody pretty much hates, or hated, I should say. We put a lot of effort into that even including working on our people at the Daily Mail. And we did some, I think, I can say this because I really didn't very, do very much myself. The team that worked on this, I think, did a tremendous um, uh, piece of work. 
producing reports, working on the media and so on to change or to take the edge of the uh, assault that was being made on gypsies and travellers in, pub, uh, in, in the media particularly. But I guess my point, my central point about this is that equality and human, the test, if I can put it this way, of your commitment to equality and human rights is what will you do for those who are least popular? Uh, one way which I often think of uh, human rights when people say what are they uh, is to say human rights are the rights that I wouldn't dare take away from the person I loathe most uh, in, this, in this country uh, and in a sense that to me is the answer to the question that we, if we are true to our business will be defending everybody and the test of us is will we defend the people that frankly we don't like or think much of Thank, thank you very much, uh, Trevor. I'm going to do the same again, just nearly a spontaneous round of applause there, Trevor. Uh, nearly, but we'll hold it for later. Uh, I'm going to take a couple that have, that have asked, and I'm going to take this gentleman who caught my eye, and that lady in the middle back whose hand is now up and can now... No, don't look around at you. But I'm going to take Harold first, who's uh, <coughs> sitting there, and have you got your question, Harold? And then I'm going to go to Ollie. I'm going to take you, and then I'm going to take the lady, and then we're going to see how we're fixed. Harold. Uh, Hello. Um, uh, my name is um, Harold Emanuel. I'm also on the um, MSc for Human Rights. And uh, my question is about um, education, but it's also about uh, group and um, institutional, uh, uh, group rights and institutional matters. So my question uh, to the commissioners is uh, whether they think that private education promotes um, unequal access to educational opportunities uh, and are a force for inequality and if so, do they anticipate promoting its rapid abolition? There you are. The private school one gets a round of applause. That nearly happened for Trevor. So that's a, that's a, that's a nice one for the commissioners. They can uh, mull over that one. Why we take Ollie? Where's Ollie? Uh, with the, no, they're not, somebody pretend to be Ollie. I, is Ollie here, local authority man? Walton Stowe? Right, well, what, what will not... Is that you? There you are. You're being very modest, Ollie. Where you go. And tell everybody who you are. Um, not in extensive detail, just... <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, my name is uh, Ollie, Ollie Kachowdhury, and I'm doing the MSc in Human Rights uh, here at SE, and I'm doing it part-time because I work as a policy officer for my local authority. And uh, I try to keep this question as broad as possible, uh, but uh, the language of human rights is very difficult for our authority to understand. Uh, we've been dealing with equality for the last few years, uh, how do you see human rights kind of like what, like we've been relying on the equality scorecard uh, for the last uh, two few years this is going to come to an end in April so what, what are we going to do what, where is the guidance coming from and what kind of big gains can we make in, in, in the next period thank is that, you is that clear uh, I think it is uh, thank you very much and the lady just behind the microphone yes and then you sir and then, and then the lady whose hand was up thank earlier. you um, for identification, uh, my name is Pat, but I'm a voluntary worker working with them for disabled people in my borough. I'm with an organisation called the Southwark Disabilities Forum. I'm also their access officer, so I'm very interested in all, every aspect of what's happening. But equality, uh, you've touched on every time of equality, but I'd like to say, now, equality is basically we're all individuals in the same kind of, 
in various kinds of societies. Um, but equality is treating everybody equal, no matter what their race and gender and who they are. But nobody's thought about, said anything about disabled people regarding being treated equally. And not only that, regarding um, local communities or local government councils, we've got a thing going on regarding about uh, local people that work for our local government at the moment. But nobody's said anything about that at this point in time. And what about um, in employment? How many employers out there who are looking to employ disabled people know what and how many different types of disability there are? And do they understand the different types of disability? Do they know what to do? If, say, for example, a person was to have an epileptic fit. Things okay. like this. Because equality comes in both directions. Right, good. I and if the employers know and understand about this kind of thing and like what it's like to be blind, if anybody wants to find out what it's like to be blind, go into a room and turn the light out. Somebody turn the light switch out. For those few seconds, you know what it's like for a blind person. But Blind persons like it all the time. Yeah, I, I think we understand got the, me. Uh, we absolutely, and we're going to, I think probably ask Jane particularly, but the other commissioners as well on the point about employment, uh, and they, them as well. Them as well, uh, sir. Uh, saying who you are and so on. Uh, my, my name is Dr. Shara Ali. I'm from the Institute of Flossy, which is also just up the road. Um, I had a worry about this returning to this question about amalgamating the institutes <coughs> and uh, I'm not entirely convinced partly because of the, the, re- the need to be functional after all and not purely for administrative grounds um, if, if these bodies were functional then isn't part of the reason possibly that they were able to focus uh, single mindedly on their more narrow remit and this enabled actually um, people to negotiate um, their values much better so that, that's the worry. And um, relatedly, um, the trouble now with, with the larger body is, isn't the remit now so wide and broad as to potentially make it quite ineffective or very controversial in certain cases. So just two quick examples. Um, for example, we, we, we had a, um, uh, a story not so long ago about a couple who were um, deaf um, and they wanted to engineer uh, their um, unborn offspring to have the same uh, lack of hearing. And, uh, you know, it it wouldn't be, I don't think it would be um, unfair to suppose that that wasn't a good, that wouldn't have been a good choice to make. Not, it wouldn't suggest discrimination as such. It would simply be saying, um, all all things being equal, we would rather bring uh, children into the world who had all the uh, capabilities that we're used to. Um, so that's one, one worry, which I wanted to know how you would actually address. And relatedly then, which is why human rights can be quite uh, a permissive uh, construct. It's not just, we might think of it as a natural um, right, which I think we're on safer ground on, you know, in terms of a right not to be tortured and things of that sort. But as the gentleman asked about, you know, freedom from religion, I don't think he's probably going to be that e- easily persuaded by your um, 
rejoinder as such. I think it, it precisely is the case that a lot of people will come together and say this is a, a kind of a socially defined right. And just to give an example yeah, just, of that, just very, very quickly, because I'm if you, look, you have a second example. If you look at this, this headline here, please help me, yeah, please help me win the X factor. So, you know, I think we are, no, honestly, we are in danger of actually people constructing things which they seem to think they have a God-given right to. Thank, thank you very much for that. And the lady who has her hand up again in order to get the microphone this time. I have never seen so many hands up, which is magnificent, and reminds me to remind you that we will have opportunities to talk with our speakers at a reception directly after this meeting, which regrettably must end pretty soon, so time has flown. You have, have never seen so many hands up because it is of enormous importance. My name is Carmen Plaver. I'm a Dutch lawyer and an um, A&E specialist, 23 years as a hospital doctor in this country, knowing all about the gross inequalities and racism within the NHS. Francesca mentioned the belief that now exists in the human rights, um, in, the, in the UK, that human rights decisions cause unfairness because uh, uh, decisions are made in favor of people who don't deserve certain things. And you have asked us what we think of your commission. Um, firstly, I want to ask you, what are you going to do to balance as a commission to educate people in this country that this so-called commission that is unique and the first of its kind in Europe is unique because it was most needed in this country. Holland and the Scandinavian countries have a long history of equality within their nation. This nation is one of gross inequalities and needs it most. But there is also enormous um, ignorance under journalists who spread in the media particularly to advance their own um, interest and their own cause, that somehow this commission doesn't deserve to exist, that it is all of left-wing ideas and brought in by Europe, and etc., etc. That is one of the things that has caused people to believe that human rights law was not needed in this country, that it is causing gross inequalities in this country. What are you doing to educate the nation to balance all this and to, to make sure that people know that frequently statistics are being distorted in the media here by, by the Daily Mail journalists, you gave the example itself, but also the Sun, the, the Express, you name it, and other uh, publications. Okay, what are you doing to educate people? Thank, thank you very much. Thank you for that. also bringing it to a brisk conclusion because I'm now going to ask the panel... Uh, really to bear in mind when responding to these five complex sets of questions that this is their last opportunity in a formal session to comment. I'm going to go to Francesca, I think, if you don't mind, because <coughs> that last comment seems to me nicely introducing you again. And then, Jane, I think, Claire, Trevor, we let you as, 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 just sum up at the end. So, Francesca, all five, but in particular, of course, that last well, one. Uh, yes, I'm immediately going to exclude myself from answering the first one on private education because... Um, my husband is, the, is a head teacher of a mixed comprehensive school. And if I was to do anything other than agree with you in my private capacity, not as a commissioner, I wouldn't be allowed in my home later. <laughs> I shall leave that issue there. Um, Ollie, on, on um, local authorities and um, how they're going to get used to the idea of human rights, quite difficult because there's been a lot of emphasis put on the equality scorecard and thinking in the equality framework. It, it, that's, a, that's an issue that I would like to talk to you about afterwards. It's very interesting to me because I don't want to bore my fellow commissioners and 
telling, let, making them hear the story of my life once again, uh, they'll start to disappear, I think, back out. But I it's a great story. <laughs> <laughs> but I got into human rights through working in local authority, not as people assume through, you know, either the law or academia. Um, the, the, I worked in Hackney for some years, and we, the period where we tried to transform the borough, and I, when I say we, I had a very, you know, I, I was a very small cog in a much bigger wheel, obviously. Um, and we were, we tried to transform it from, you know, the sort of, you know, generational, you know, sons, fathers to sons, which meant, you know, white, uh, able-bodied uh, local residents passing everything from jobs to housing to everything else down to their usually sons, sometimes daughters, to a, a, a borough that reflected the diversity of the population of Hackney, the most diverse area in the UK. And in the process, people got a lot more equal and a lot more unhappy. Um, I have never been in a situation where relations were work. One of our mandates, which we haven't talked about tonight on the Equality Commission, Human Rights Commission, is that we're responsible for promoting good relations. Well, we are still in the process of discussing what good relations mean, but my experience in Hackney certainly taught me what bad relations mean. And it was through that experience <coughs> that I then, when I became familiar with human rights framework and values, saw the purpose of it. I, I personally think that um, human rights has more to offer people working in public authorities, local authorities, than probably any other group of people in the country. How are we going to do it? We're going to do it through, I hope, guidance, simple guidance, which takes some of the principles in case law, some of the principles that have been established about how you can apply what Jane was talking about, which is respect and dignity in real situations, to, which goes beyond the issue of non-discrimination or e even equal treatment, recognising difference, recognising, if I can go into your question as well, Pat, recognising that, you know, the not equality doesn't mean treating everybody the same, but recognising our needs as human beings and how we tailor our services to that. Now, that sounds a very tall order, but actually principles have developed through the kinds of examples that, that, that Jane was giving, where one can actually translate that into very practical guidance. A, a final point on that, I was a social worker in my very... I've had an extremely eclectic life. Uh, I, I, I am <coughs> nothing, but I've done lots of different things. And my very first job was as a social worker. And when I was a social worker and had so much power at a very young age over the basic decisions of people's lives, I was desperate for some kind of ethical framework within which to operate. I have had the privilege of sitting in on training of social workers within human rights uh, terms by the British Institute of Human Rights, one of whose uh, prime workers is sitting in the audience tonight. And I have seen how social workers really, really value a framework which goes beyond just saying equality, non-discrimination, but how do you deal with, you know, respecting someone's privacy whilst knowing you have got to say something about them to the authority because otherwise they might harm themselves. Those are the real decisions that people have to make in public services. And I actually think that, like the police have found, quite openly, amazingly, of all public servants, it's the police that are most nervous about talks about repealing the Human Rights Act because they find it so useful in their framework. So I think that public authorities will too. I suspect I should okay. shut up Possibly. and let everyone else answer. Thank, thank, you, thank you very much. That's marvellous. Uh, and there's no, there's no end to the jobs you've done. That's a new one on me. It's quite extraordinary. Every public event is yet another one. Fantastic. Uh, Jane, you can choose which you wish to focus on. Because I'm so old. <laughs> 
Start tomorrow, I'll try. Well, it's not tomorrow. <laughs> if, I, if I may say so, this, this whole argument about are we too broad, are we too narrow, no, it's bollocks. I mean, the point is, are we, are we going to do the job? That's the only question. We, you could formulate uh, this in a million different ways. You could construct the response to the legal, uh, 
the, the legal mandate in a hundred different ways. I could construct the organisation uh, that even that we've got in 20 different ways. I think we can then spend an enormous amount of effort arguing about should there be six commissions or should there be three. It doesn't really matter. The question is, do we understand what are the most important priorities? Have we got the tools to deal with them? And have we got the courage, as James is saying, to address them? If you want a kind of functional answer, and I can say this, I guess, with authorities, someone who had to lead the largest of the legacy commissions, the straight answer to your question is that the legacy commissions themselves were both too broad and also too narrow. And I will give you a simple example from the case of the CRE. It is only literally in its last week that the Commission for Race Equality really started to address the situation of a million people in this country who are of mixed race. And the reason is that prior to that, uh, the thought was that actually there were too small a set of groups for the CRE because it was all ethnic minorities, but at the same time, uh, they were just the wrong shape. So the idea that you know the, the CRE in its previous, in, in the old formation, had uh, had it all lit is just doesn't just doesn't relate to the actual reality. But more importantly than that, and here is where I think the big difference is, and it relates to something Francesca said earlier on. You can decide whether you want a commission like ours to be a flag waver. That is to say, a bunch of people who use the statutory mandate purely to raise the issue, to advocate on behalf of groups of people. And I think that's a perfectly respectable ambition. And it's one when I ran, uh, when I chaired <coughs> CRE, I thought was an incredibly important part of our job. The difficulty with that is that it's not enough if you want to change society just to be an advocate. You have to put your hands on the lever of power, levers of power. You can't simply be there just to say, this particular group feels aggrieved, but somebody's got to fix it. You have to be there fixing it too, if you really want to take control. The important point about the new commission is that it has a different set of powers, or an increased set of powers. It, as I said earlier on, focuses on changing institutions, and we have the capacity to begin to do that. But most of all, it, it doesn't have the luxury, I think, of simply saying, we're only here to look after a particular group. We have a much bigger ambition than that. We're here to change this country. And one of the things that will help us change that, this country is if we are not seen as a representative or an advocate for a sectional interest. But instead, the representative and the advocate for a set of values a set of values that say the right thing about this country. If we are advocates for anything, it's not for disabled people or women or ethnic minorities. It is for equality. It is for human rights. It is for a, a vision of this country that all of its people can sign up to. What then follows from that is that individuals and groups of individuals should be treated more fairly, should have greater freedom. But we're not here to simply be a lobby group for a series of different, of different uh, disassociated groups. And by the way, one of the important things that I think Francesca, point Francesca made, which I briefly will amplify, is that we have a function and a capacity that nobody's ever had before. 
which is to begin to try to deal with some of the potential conflicts of interest between different sets of people, which in the end, in a more diverse society, is going to be the thing that changes us, that, that makes, in a sense, the difference between we become, whether we become a society which is a chorus of conflicting voices with everybody saying, me, 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 my type, my type, my type, or whether we're a society which says we are going to share, we're going to treat each other fairly, we have shared ambitions, we have a shared future. <coughs> now, we're for the second. And that leads me to the last point. I always understand it when people say the media, they're bastards, I'm a journalist. I know what it is to be a, a, a bastard, that's my job. <laughs> but you have to be Indeed. Okay, you're off the commission. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I know why you say that. But let me just share, say something about this. The media, of course, are a problem. They are an obstacle. But in this country, at least, one of the things you have to remember is that media are not leaders. They are followers. The tabloid the newspapers essentially say things that they think will please their readers. Twenty years ago, red tops were uh, virulently anti-lesbian, anti-gay. The climate in this country has changed to such an extent that there would be uproar if, for example, the Sun published some of the things it published 20 to 25 years ago. The reason I make this point is this. In the end, we mustn't get too fixated in imagining that a battle between within the political, me political media classes is what this is about. Actually, where we're going to change this is on the ground, in real people's homes, and indeed, as Jane said, in their hearts. In the end, we mustn't get too fixated on the idea that the Daily Mail decides what happens. Actually, the Daily Mail follows its readers. Remember, it was the Daily Mail, supposedly a racist paper, which is the only one which published the photographs of the alleged murders of Stephen Lawrence and put on a banner headline saying murderers. And why? Because the editor of the Daily Mail knew that his readers had changed their minds because of Doreen Lawrence. It was Doreen Lawrence's effect on real people that made the difference. So I completely understand why people say this, but I just want to say to everybody in this room, because I feel this so strongly, it is very easy for us to get fixated on the wrong thing. Where we will fail is if we make the, the Equality and Human Rights Commission a sort of Westminster clever people's body that is worried about those arguments. Where we're going to succeed, particularly on the human rights front, is that we can persuade the British people through their real life experience that human rights is what will protect them from, from authority uh, taking away their freedom, will protect their relatives from being maltreated when they're in care, their children from being silenced when they're in school. That is what will make difference. And as Francesca said earlier on, the real target for us is not the clever people's discussion, 
It's the 60 million out there. And the media, of course, are part of that. But it's not a matter of education. People out there are smart. It's a matter of us getting into the struggle, getting into the argument. And I, the last point I want to make is I started by talking about education, about occupations here. One of the things I think we may sometimes forget is all of these rights, all of these things that we have, didn't come because we educated people into them. Tall paddle martyrs, trade unions, they happened because people fought, argued, struggled for them. That's the answer here, not telling people what they should think, but fighting over it. Thank you very much. Thank you, Trevor. Uh, it's been interesting to observe how the clapping has become more enthusiastic as the evening goes on, which is not the normal pattern, so that's a tribute to our speakers. Uh, if you've enjoyed it, one of the things we really are proudest of are our events here. We have Ravinder Singh coming in in November to talk about what went wrong in Iraq. We have Ken Roth from New York, the head of Human Rights Watch, coming in December. We have people who suffer terrible human rights situations in countries like Zimbabwe speaking on our Human Rights Defenders lunchtime talk. It's all here. We'd welcome you all back. Uh, in particular, though, we welcome you upstairs to the reception. It's in the senior dining room, which is the fifth floor. Those of you who are old hands at the centre, and I recognise many of you, which is marvellous, know where it is. Fifth floor, one of our many lifts, all two of them available. Before you leave, I know you're anxious to get away, uh, uh, Trevor's talking about how times have changed in this country in the last 25 years. So, and he's so right, if somebody came to this country in 1980, you are looking at three of the people who have actually helped to change. Those CVs earlier on all talked about engagement when it was not easy. And if you have time, have a look at Jack Straw's speech and Gordon Brown's speech. They're ministers of governments in the United Kingdom. Uh, this sounds partisan. It would have been improbable 15 to 20 years ago that we would have read such speeches today. And it's in no small part due to the three people we have. So let's thank them for coming, thank them for the commission, but also thank them for their contribution. <laughs> <laughs>